You're listening to the Living Word Church Podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordli.org. Good morning. I feel like, I said this first service, with the lights the way they are, my head is like a superpower. I can, I can like kill people in the first two rows. Uh, cool to be here. Just remember they do not put marble tops on cheap furniture. Just saying. All right. Uh, before we get into stuff, let me give you a little bit of background. So a uh, long time ago, I started off my career as a church planter and planted a church in Seattle, Washington, spent 10 years out in Seattle, and uh, God bless us, did lots of cool stuff. Uh, met a guy named John Maxwell. John's a leadership dude, writes books on leadership and stuff, and I became executive vice president of his group and worked all around the country uh, with John for a number of years, spent a little time as vice president of the Billy Graham Association, uh, working with Franklin Graham, and they were kind enough to sign on as a client so that we could have kind of our own shingle. So fast forward, I have been blessed to work, my, my group, with a 1,000 churches all across the country, 46 of the states, they're for God doesn't love, I don't know why, uh, but uh, I won't tell you who they are, but their initials are Rhode Island, um, no, and we do a little bit in Canada, I've done a little bit in South America, uh, been blessed to be part of literally a billion dollars worth of projects to see cool stuff going on, and so sometimes when I show up, I think part of my job is to get to bring a little perspective of kind of what's happening uh, just to give you a little basic backdrop, in the United States, there are 360,000 churches of all kinds. So if you put them all together, all different kinds of churches, 360,000 churches. The average church in America has less than 90 people. You just look at the average. 75% of all those churches never hit 200 people in their total existence. So you're already an aberration. So already, living word, what you guys are doing here is an aberration. Um, Coming out of COVID, it's been really crazy. And I don't have to tell you that, but it's been really crazy. So, like I said, been doing this a long time, been on planes, going all over the place. When 9-11 happened, I was working with a church in Portland, Oregon. I was on my way to fly back to the East Coast. I was one of those people in an airplane when they grounded all the planes and made everybody grind or land the closest place they could, which for us was back in Portland, and then drove all the way home across the country. I experienced that. I, during 2008, when we had the, the whole financial bubble and real estate and all that stuff in the banks, uh, was working with churches and going through all that stuff. But I will tell you, all of that pales as impact compared to the last two or three years. The pandemic is crazy. It's crazy. Because for the first time, you had something catastrophic happen, and they said, oh, by the way, A, churches are not essential institutions. And you can't meet, at least for a period of time. And then depending on what state you're in, maybe you could start to meet, but it was super restricted. And you drew circles around your chair, and you had to be too, so far away from somebody. And you had to wear masks and all kinds of crazy stuff. You've done it. We've, we've gone all through it. But I'm just letting you know that it was very impacting. So give you an example. One church we're working with in the Philadelphia area, in their denomination, just in that one district, there are 26 churches that closed temporarily for COVID that will never reopen. That one spot. So not everybody bounces back. I said it's kind of funny that bars, restaurants, and churches seem to be the ones that got hit the hardest. But what, what God is doing at Living Word in here, you are in the top 1%. 
you're growing. Your Easter was great. Lots of people came. And here's what I got to tell you. First of all, when you drive by that property, I forgot. It's been a while since I've been here. So this morning on the way to the school, I didn't realize that the property's also on the way. And so I went by the gates. I'm like, that looks familiar. Uh, and, and I'm like, gone. that is just gorgeous. I mean, it is amazing. And in a place like this, it's like you're in California, New York, where land's so expensive to find a parcel like that, that large, and to be so close to where you're already meeting is amazing, and how God opened the doors for that to happen and, and where you are. I'm Part of the reason I'm here, I think, is to, to encourage you not to grow weary in well-doing. That's scripture, not to grow weary in well-doing, that it's a marathon that we're on and God's blessing, but it is a process to do that. It's a, a difficult thing, but there's a reason. Here's what the, the piece. We have to constantly remember as a church that as a church, we are the only club in the world that exists for non-members. Think about that. We're not building something so that we have a cool box, so that we can have a place to hang out, our new club. We are getting a tool that is making it more effective to reach people around us that don't know God. And in North America, what I will tell you is that it's really, really tough to do that without some kind of a 24-7, 365-day location. That in North America... If you look, and the statistical the statistics back this up, that with all your neighbors, and you say, hey, why don't you come to church with me sometime? Where are you? Well, we're meeting over in this school. And they, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, no, never. Um, <laughs> here's the reason. About 80% of the people, they don't psychologically feel like a pioneer or an early adopter. And to go hang out in the loosey-goosey church that sets up and tears down in a temporary location like a school is not really something that they see, okay, let's go try that out. Once you get into your spot and it's like a real thing, it doesn't have to be fancy, they become much more open to check God out there too. So it's not just because, oh, we're tired of setting up and tearing down, tired of being in a school. That's not it. Or it'd be, you know, why do we want to spend all the money on that? It is a tool. It is something that we're trying to accomplish. Okay, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I want to go a little bit into scripture, but I just wanted to share. God's blessing you guys. What you've been able to do already is amazing, and I don't think he's done with you. I think that's pretty evident, but I want to start with scripture. So if you got your Bibles, uh, we're going to look at John, Gospel of John chapter 12. I'm going to be using the NIV translation. We're just coming out of Easter, so this story is going to be familiar to you. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was meant that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Would you pray with me? God, thank you just for the opportunity to be here today. For the next few minutes, help me get out of the way and just guide us through your scripture, being guided by your spirit, 
unpack this story, a real event, real people from so long ago and what it might have to say to us today. I thank you for everything you've done, the shoulders that we stand on, the ability to be here today, reaching the people that we're able to reach, but we realize that our job's not done and it's a lot more than facilities and that we just want to make sure that we have the best tools possible to reach the most people that we possibly can. Guide us for the next few minutes through your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been talking about buildings. Buildings are expensive. Um, no matter what it is you're trying to do, crazy right now, expenses as far as materials and deliveries and just it's, everything's really crazy and it just gets crazier and crazier. But, and so then you start wondering, okay, is that really something we should spend a lot of money on? Is that really a wise investment? But it's not the only place that we spend money. So we spend money in a lot of different areas and there's always somebody that second guesses that a little bit. So I was reading an article about weddings. Middle-class weddings in America right now have surpassed the average of $30,000 on the average middle-class wedding. Not fancy weddings, not rich weddings, 30 grand. 30 grand. Now, I got married in 1852, so it was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and we didn't have any money. And so, you know, our, our rehearsal dinner was Kentucky Fried Chicken in the buckets. Uh, <laughs> And our reception after the wedding, the cake and stuff, was in an old barn. It was clean, no animals, but it was an old barn. And the best gift that we received was a set of tires for our car, and they were appreciated. I mean, you know, so 30 grand, I'm like, 30 grand, that's a lot. And so the article is saying, you know, is that even a good investment? And you could put money down on a house, or you could buy furniture. You know, there's so many things that you need to do when you're starting out together. So is that somewhere you want to spend a lot of dollars? But it's not just weddings. I mean, so how about hobbies? I have a friend that goes all over the world and climbs mountains. I mean, literally, flies all over, gets somewhere, spends days, weeks, and they trek and climb these mountains. And he's invited me a few times. Hey, you got to go with me on this climb. I'm like, no. Uh, is there a Marriott at the top? I mean, <laughs> maybe, you know, and is there not an easier way to get there? You know, it's like, no, that's not me. I've got another friend. She and her husband will spend money and go all over the world. They did, did Vietnam recently to scuba dive. I'm like, okay, no, not me either. Maybe it's boats, RVs, motorcycles, golf. Well, golf's different. That's ordained by God. So that, that's a different thing. But you, could, you can spend money on a lot of different stuff, and there's always somebody who's going to question, it. is it a good place for us to spend money? And in the church world, we're talking buildings, and so there's always somebody questioning that. Is it too extravagant? Is it a good expression of our love and appreciation? Is that something we should do? So the reason I took this, this story that I wanted to unpack, it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Okay, so sometimes when Jesus is speaking, they're parables. You know, parables are stories where he's making an illustration. So let me tell you this story to illustrate a point. And then sometimes what we're unpacking and opening up together about Jesus' life and ministry are actually just retelling of events. So if you look at Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when I was a kid, we learned that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John went to bed with their stockings on. I don't know what that has to do with anything. Uh, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the four Gospels all tell the same stories to, for the most part. So they're telling the, life, the story of the life of Jesus, but they do it from different perspectives. So it's kind of a mini-series with different cameras. And so if you look at John that we read, read today and unpack this story, you can also look over in Mark chapter 14 and see some of the same story, and you get some layers to it. So here's an interesting piece. This is um, about six days before the Passover. 
What they do not know in the section we just read is that Jesus is going to be crucified in just a matter of days. They don't know that. So it's at a high time. It's at a pinnacle time. Jesus' ministry, everybody knowing about him, everybody, it's a celebration. We know that Mary and Martha are kind of hosting, but if you read Mark, it looks like the house is probably Simon the leper's house. Now, why is he Simon the leper? Because he had leprosy. So Jesus had healed him. He's a guy with some wealth. So they're going to have this event in Jesus' honor, and Simon's like, hey, I'll open my house. And Mary and Martha say, hey, we'll help serve, make this thing happen. Also, remember their brother, Lazarus, who Jesus is close to, had died. We all know that story. And when he dies, they get word to Jesus, but the scripture says he tarries. In other words, he doesn't get there very quickly. And when he does get there, Lazarus is already dead. He's already been in the tomb for a few days. And you remember, if you were ever a kid in Sunday school and you had to memorize a scripture, you wanted this one. It's the shortest one in the New Testament. It just says, Jesus wept. Why did he cry? He knew what the future was going to be with Lazarus, but he wept because of his, he, he cared for the family. So that's already happened. So Lazarus dies. He gets there. He weeps. Remember, he says, ah, don't worry about it. He's, he's not really dead. He's asleep. He says, let's, let's open that, that tomb up. And they're like, hey, wait, let's not open the tomb up. He'd been in there a while. And it's like, no, 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 open the tomb. And so he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he brings Lazarus out. So we got Lazarus, who's dead, has been raised from the dead. We got Simon, who had leprosy. And that was that hideous disease that literally, when it started to show, you had to, by law, remove yourself from everybody, your family, the community, and stay away so somebody wouldn't get it contagious. And if they got close, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean. So it would demoralize you as well as ravage you physically. And Simon had been healed, had been cleansed. So Simon's house, he's beaming. He's, you know, he's been cleaned. Lazarus, dead. He's, he's back. We got Mary and Martha, two sisters. It couldn't be any more different. Martha is serving. She's the one that's like making sure everything's happening. Everything's taken care of. Mary's probably supposed to help her, but she's one of those. You know, my, my wife has two sisters, and she has one that whenever there's something to do, she calls her the runner. Where's the runner? It's like something's to do. She needs to do something. So where is she? She disappears. She runs. She's, she's gone. So that's probably Mary. Mary ran. Mary is watching all this unfold. Now, first of all, I got a question for you. This is a commercial. Gospel according to Phil is a question. If you're invited to this and you get to pick where you sit, where do you want to sit? Now, your, your Christian answer is like, well, I guess I would want to sit by Jesus I want to sit by Lazarus. Dude was dead. I got questions. I mean, dude was dead. I'm like, hey, bright light, no bright light. You were falling. You weren't falling. It was cold. It was hot. You know, I, I got questions. Simon, yeah, I saw you. You're clean. All right. Your arm looks great. This guy was dead. I want to know about Lazarus. So Lazarus reclining at the table. Simon's all excited. They're all in his house. Everybody's there. It's very festive. Mary's watching, and Mary does something very unorthodox. And you have to kind of get into her head a little bit. It's like, okay, why does she do this? So she secrets away, comes back with this pint of nard, this jar, sealed jar of an expensive balm, salve, that purposely, if you had money, if you had a little money in your family, you kept this so that when somebody died in your family and before preparing them for burial, you would break this open, use it, cover the body, anoint the body. This was something of value, a year's wages. So even if it was a laborer's wages, it's a lot of money. So a year's wages of that. Until recently, 
And when I say recent, when you look at world civilization, it's not been that long where we've had this professional piece come in that separates you and I from everything that goes on when somebody dies. For history, when someone died, the family did everything. So the family recovered the body, cleansed the body, took care of the body, had a vigil with the body, buried the body, all that stuff we all did. So they would have had this jar, had this value. So she brings it out, breaks it open, and comes to anoint Jesus' feet. Now, here's my question. Here's my thought. I think, and once again, this gospel according to Phil, I think it had to be her second jar. I think she already had a jar because her brother had died and been buried. She wouldn't have saved it and not used it on Lazarus. And my thought is when she and her sister just earlier had to prepare their brother for burial, they didn't know Jesus was going to come back and raise him from the dead, that she would have broken open that first jar, she and her sister would have cleansed their brother's body poured this, this salve on it, the salve would not have been the only thing to touch his skin. Their tears would have been there too. In their minds, it would be very natural to say, why did I not do something this generous while he was alive? So fast forward, watched him resurrected, filled with joy. Why are you filled with joy? It's because of Jesus. You see Jesus, he's there. And she's overwhelmed like, I'm not going to miss that opportunity this time. And she goes away. She gets the other jar. She comes back and breaks it open, and she pours it on his feet. Now, the Scripture says, the aroma filled the room. Have you ever had a memory triggered by something that you smelled, something fragrant, and it triggers a memory? So I'm from the southeast, and uh, my, my grandmother, my favorite grandmother, was uh, in West Virginia. And she was a good cook, just good country cooking. And as a kid, I never had this grow up, uh, growing up in Ohio, but she always seemed to have, uh, would cook apples. Did you ever do cooked apples? And you know that smell where you cook them down, and it's just got a little sweet for apple fragrance to it. And it's not often, but whenever I smell that, it's like I think of my grandmother. It's just, it, it takes me back. I think that when she broke that open, everybody in that room would have experienced that aroma with somebody in their life that had died in the past. So it went from a festive celebration to everybody's like, man, why am I sad? <laughs> you know, it's like, what? what's going on? What's that smell? I, it's just so out of place. And they look over, and she, first of all, it says she anoints his feet, and then she took her hair down. This is going to be a hard visual reference for you to <laughs> take my hair down. Uh, women of that century and that culture did not cut their hair. They did not take their hair down in public. One commentator said it would have been just as inappropriate for her to take her hair down in public as a Victorian-era woman with the long dress to hike it up to her thigh in the middle of a dinner party. That's, that's what it would be. So she takes her hair down. She doesn't care. She takes her hair down and starts to dry his feet. She does not want to waste this opportunity to express her love and generosity toward Jesus. They will make reference in a minute, which I think is interesting. It's because Judas is going to get all, you know, huffy. But it is a fulfillment of prophecy. You remember when Jesus died? 
They had to hurry and get him off the cross because we're too close to the Sabbath. By law, we can't touch a dead body. So they throw him into a borrowed tomb. It was not where he was going to be buried. The whole idea of a borrowed tomb, it was kind of a holding place so they could go back when it was permitted the next day and anoint his body and prepare for burial. They weren't expecting a resurrection. So when they show up and the angels are there, what do they find? Nothing. Angels. Jesus is gone. Jesus' body was never prepared for burial. But it was days earlier. So here's what I want you to see. I, I love the section. I love the scripture. I love the whole the story behind it. But what I want you to see, is, uh, just three life lessons. Number one, our love and devotion for Jesus and for each other needs to be expressed while there's an opportunity. Our love and devotion for Jesus and for each other needs to be expressed. So Thomas Carlyle was a, a Scottish writer, essayist, author, was a, was a workaholic. Probably would not have had a personal life and got married if not for the fact that he ended up marrying a secretary because he just didn't socialize. So he, they seemed to have a good marriage, married. He's in his study working, writing all the time. He's just one of those very introverted people. She gets sick. So she's in her bed, bedridden, sick for a period of time. And he doesn't realize, but she's sicker than he thinks, and she dies. So day of the funeral, he's crestfallen, uh, go do the burial. She comes back to the house while everybody's milling around the house. He goes up to her bedroom and finds her diary and reads some of the excerpts. And here's what he said. Yesterday, Thomas spent an hour with me and it was like being in heaven. I love him so. Next, I've listened all day to hear my husband's footsteps in the hall, but now it's late and I guess he doesn't have time to come. The story is that they couldn't find him. They finally went back to the grave site, and that's where he was, kneeling by the fresh grave of his wife, muttering over and over, if I'd only known, if I'd only known. Here's my, my point to you. When you feel an impulse to be generous, act. People die, children grow up, Friends move away, circumstances change. When the impulse to be generous happens, circumstances may never be the same again. Act. Two, when you express love and generosity, expect criticism. So when you do something generous, there will be somebody that always is taking a shot. It's the Judas. Remember, Judas is like, hey, wait a minute, why are we doing this? This money... This money could have been given to the poor. Well, first of all, it's not his money. It's hers. She can do what she wants to do with it. And we know, because the scripture unfolds, says he was a thief. He was the dude that carried the money because he wanted to put his little sticky hand into it every so often. So he saw a year's worth of wages that could have been in that bag. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. I could have got a little bit of, a little bit of that. So he takes a shot. When you do something, there will be criticism. So the same article that I read about weddings and talking about the average expense and all that, it goes on to say that weddings are a bad investment because 50% of marriages end in divorce. So if you only got one out of two chance, why would you spend money on that investment? Well, that is a great pick-me-up, isn't it? So, so you're thinking about getting married to say, yeah, let's go cheat because odds are we're not going to like each other. I mean, yeah. It, it, it's like, okay, here's the way I look at it. Yeah, so people get divorced. I got it. Here's the point. 
It's what I tell my son, my humble but accurate opinion. In my humble but accurate opinion. Who you spend your life with as a mate, in my opinion, is more important than where you go to college or the career track you get on. If you look in the totality of life and what it, the experience is going to be. You can have a great job, you can have great education, and if you get in the wrong relationships, it's misery. So maybe if this decision is so impacting on my whole life, it's worth me investing in. Humble but accurate opinion. Same thing with buildings. You know, hey, buildings cost money. Uh, is it a good investment? Churches are going to spend how much money to get onto that property and use that building? I mean, what, should we really do that? Why is it? I, I worked with a church that actually bought an old mall, and the mall had been abandoned for years. It was just, you know, one of those, the only people get in the parking lot to shoot somebody. I mean, it was just a bad spot. And the church bought it, redid it. It was really cool. It's really cool to this day. But there were negative articles written in the paper about, you know, churches and spending money on buildings. I'm like, well, how come nobody ever complains when Disney spends money on a ride? You know, I did a little research. Disney has over 10 rides that they spent over $100 million each developing. 10 rides, over $100 million each developing. Nobody ever says, oh, man, I don't, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why would you spend all that money on a ride? What is the ride at Disney? You go, first of all, I'm so glad my kid's grown. You go to Disney. You stand in line for two hours to get in there and lock down the little thing, go on like a roller coaster. It's like two minutes long. Right at the end, it flips you up, so you put your hands up and takes your picture and sell it to you when you get off. And you know, that was really fun. You want to stand in line two hours and do it again? It's like, okay, I'm not taking shots at the mouse in Disney. But maybe a place that is a facility for people to impact life's forever and eternity is a good investment as well. Two questions to always ask when you get ready to do something generous. Number one, is this gift I'm about to do, is it a, a valid expression of my love for Christ? And two, is it my only expression? Because I don't think it's your only expression. See, I found that churches that spend money on facilities often spend a lot of money changing lives and being very compassionate towards others as well. A church in Omaha, Nebraska, we're working with. We've worked with them for a long time doing multiple projects. The one they just did raised, I think, $4 million. And its primary objective is they realize that if you're a single mom trying to raise kids, that one of the things that derails you more than anything else financially is a dependable vehicle. And so they said, okay, we're going to build a facility and use volunteers, and if you've got a car, you donate it. We'll go over it and mechanically make it sure it's all good, and then we're going to give it to people that need them and try to break that cycle that they're in financially. Seems pretty compassionate. Does have a facility, did have a need, so Judas, remember, he says, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. Somebody's always going to take a shot. Somebody's always going to be critical of what you're doing with the funds that you have in your hand. Mark 14, 19 says, everywhere the gospel is preached, what Mary did will be remembered. So here's what I want to end with, three life lessons. Number one, be reluctant to judge the extravagance of other people. When somebody does something, be reluctant to judge you don't know enough. We don't know enough. We just stand on the outside and we make observations and we think we know stuff. Let's, let's imagine for a minute. Let's imagine that somebody, I have a distant relative, they die. 
I'm surprised, but I'm notified by an attorney that they gave me a million dollars. First of all, let's just all shut our eyes and enjoy that. Because it's not going to happen, so this is the closest I'll get. But they gave me a million bucks. And so let's say that my wife and I say, you know what, that was unexpected, that's a blessing. Let's do something crazy. We've been in ministry for years, and there's some really cool stuff we've been exposed to. What if we took like 90% of that and stuck it over into this foundation, and we start just giving the, the spinoff money from it to all these different things we've been exposed to? But I'm going to save that 10% because I have my eye on a car that I think is really cool. I've watched the Barrett-Jackson auction, and you got to go down that wormhole to find that. And there's this really cool car, and I'm going to buy that car. So what do you see? You see my car. That's it. You don't see anything else. And so then it's easy. I start passing judgment, and why are they doing that? And look what they're doing. Be reluctant to judge when someone else does something of, gen of a generous nature, too. And this does not, the second one does not affect all of us, but I do, do think it affects some. Be receptive to generosity from other people. I think there are times when you're on the receiving end, and if you're not careful, pride gets in the way. So sometimes in your life, be receptive. And then third, and this is key, be responsive to opportunities for love to be expressed. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each man should give what he has decided to give in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It is my, my belief that most of us have a jar of nard of some kind in our life. And we save it, but then there we're prompted sometimes to do something generous, and there's a piece of us that's always reluctant. There's a piece that doesn't want to be foolish. We don't want to look like we're silly. We don't want to do something that, that really, oh, I can't believe I did that. And so we, we squelch it. We push it down. My plea for you is that when God prompts your spirit to break open whatever that jar is, break it open. Do not believe in a, a God of scarcity. That if God prompts you to be generous, he is the same person that gave you the jar to begin with. Years ago, I was uh, flying cross-country uh, from uh, Cincinnati to Seattle, and it was a red-eye. You know, red-eyes where you get on at midnight and you fly across the country. So I'm getting on the plane, and there, it's the, the configuration of the plane. There are three seats, you know, on that side. And so I've got an aisle seat, and all I'm doing is looking really mean at everybody coming down the aisle so they don't want to sit with me. Because, you know, I, I'm just hoping there's nobody in that middle seat. Finally, this other guy comes along, businessman. He takes the seat by the window, and we both look mean at people. And nobody ever sits in the middle seat, so I'm very excited. So we got a five-hour flight, middle of the night. Uh, I do not have anything to read. This is not a plane that's got the little TV screens. I'm sitting there, and I'm not tired, and I'm like, I'm bored out of my gourd. As soon as we get in the air, and they give us permission to do stuff, you know, he flips down his tray uh, in front of his seat, and he flips down the one in the empty seat as well, and he opens up his briefcase, and he starts pulling out all kinds of materials. He's going to work. Well, I'm bored, so what do I do? I read all his crap. <laughs> I'm just leaning over trying to see what it is. And it's all kinds of contracts. So he's, it looks like he's an attorney of some kind. So there are all kinds of contracts. So I'm sure there's, I'm probably violating some law, but I'm, I'm reading. 
And it's like Doubleday Publishing, Nike, there's all kinds of these companies. But the one common denominator on all the, the contracts is Ken Griffey Jr. Now, if you're a baseball fan, Ken Griffey, Hall of Famers, Ken Griffey's dad, uh, Ken Sr. played for the Reds when I was a kid. Uh, Ken Jr. played for the Mariners when I was out living in Seattle. Uh, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal player. But, but at this particular stage, he's still playing. And I do know when I look at the little white guy beside me, he's not Ken Griffey Jr. And so after a while, I figure out he has nowhere to go for five hours, so I, why can't I ask? And so I just stuck my hand out, and I said, I'm Phil Ling. And he goes, I'm Brian Goldberg. I say, Brian, I couldn't help but eat, read all your crap. <laughs> and he was a gracious guy. And for the next five hours, I learned he is Ken's agent. And he was flying out to meet Ken because uh, Nike was opening Nike Town in Seattle, and Kenny was going to be there. And they had some stuff for him to sign, and so that's why he was going out. And so I, I learned all kinds of stuff about it. He was his only client. Uh, he went to law school at the University of Cincinnati when Ken Sr. was playing for the Reds and was taking some courses. And they became friends, and Ken Sr. at the time said, hey, I got this kid's getting ready to get out of high school. He's going to get drafted. He's really great. He's going to be better than me. And, of course, everybody thinks their kid's great. You know, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, I want you to be his agent. So he graduates from law school, immediately becomes agent for this one guy that ends up being like a Hall of Famer. So very, very cool story. I also learned that if you're making 7.5% of $17 million a year, you don't need a lot of clients. So <laughs> it's not a bad deal, not counting all the other income. So he's nice, teach me all kinds of stuff. He's just really gracious. So after a long time, I said, okay, I got one last question, Brian, and I'll leave you alone. I said, this is a cross-country red-eye flight, and we're sitting in coach. I know why I'm back here, because it's a cheap ticket. Why are you back here? He says, because it's not my money. I said, first of all, if I'm ever famous, you're my agent. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I want you as my agent. He says, my job's not just to make Kenny money. My job's to protect his money. I'm like, that's amazing. That, that's amazing. You and I, here's the hard part of life. Billy Graham called it the brevity of life. We don't accumulate because the accumulation, you think it's something you're going to keep unless they bury you in a pyramid with everything, you didn't accumulate. You were a steward for a period of time of whatever you've been blessed with. So the realization that it's not mine and that I'm going to be held accountable to how I deal with what I'm a steward of for a period of time, that's really the, that's the, that's the Christian message about how we handle wealth. Right now, you have the opportunity, pray, let God direct your life, and if he prompts you to break open the jar, break open the jar. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for your word, so we don't just go through life wondering how we to live. That we can open up the Bible, and the Bible says that if we will read and study and take it into our lives, that it won't come back empty. That you will bring fruit from that. So I thank you for your word. I thank you for the stories like in John and Mark that it's, it, this is something that happened with real people. We get to see that snapshot. Help us to learn. Help us to, to say, okay, what is, what's the, the piece that I want to take away? That I'm to be generous. I'm to be sensitive when you prompt me. I'm to respond and with my own generosity and then let you work the miracle. 
I thank you for living word. I thank you for all the people that have come before, the shoulders that we stand on, the fact that you're reaching hundreds and hundreds of people right here in a, in a school. And just if we had a facility that we could use that land you gave us, would you bless us and open those doors? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.